We do wish formally to welcome you who are our guests tonight. We're glad to have you among us and trust that if you have any questions about the purpose of our church or the things we do, feel free to ask us. We'll be happy to help and answer any questions you have. It is our desire not that you would come and go away confused, but that you would come and go away more interested and more curious about the things of the God whom we worship in this place. If you are one of the Lord's own, we would trust that as you go away, you would know that you've been in the midst of the people of God and in the presence of God. That's our prayer. That's our desire. And we would be disappointed and grieved if it were not to be accomplished. So we do welcome you and are glad you're here. Now turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the second chapter. Revelation chapter 2. We begin to read with verse 24 and read to the end of the chapter. Revelation 2, 24 through 29. But to you I say, to the rest that are in Thyatira, as many as have not this teaching who know not the deep things of Satan, as they are wont to say, I cast upon you none other burden. Nevertheless, that which you have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes, and he that keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now please again, join me as we pray again together. Our Father, I would ask that you may put aside the sins, the idiosyncrasies, the distractive things about this servant, and cause your people tonight to be able to fix their gaze upon Christ. O Lord, let men step aside, and the Lord our God take center stage. Help the preacher and help the hearer, everyone seated here, to your eternal glory and to our good for Christ's sake. Amen. Tonight, we resume our study of the letters sent by the Lamb of God to the seven churches in Asia Minor in A.D. 95. We're continuing our consideration of the letter to the church at Thyatira, sent from him who knows all about them, who loves them dearly, and who is able and ready to punish all resistance to his will. You'll remember that a woman in the church at Thyatira claimed to be a prophetess and taught and seduced Christ's servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Trade guilds ruled the economy of Thyatira. You recall that Lydia, who was saved in Philippi, was of Thyatira and was a dealer in purple. Thyatira was an abundantly flowing economic center, and they were known for their Garments, wool and scarlet and purple. And since these trade guilds ruled the economy, therefore they also ruled the social and the religious life of the city. Powerful pressure was exerted to partake of the fruits of a thriving economy. The pagan worship which accompanied the fruits of this economy and the achieving of this economy put much pressure on God's people to conform. We know from reading history 
that at the beginning of each business day in the market, at the center where the guilds met together and uh, shared their insights and traded their goods, sacrifices were made to idols, perhaps most especially to Apollo, the idol that was the center attraction of the city, the sun god. And at the end of each day, they gave thanks as they made sacrifices to the idols for all the profits and all the benefits and all the good things. Now, it was seen in the culture that this was a necessary thing to participate in these trade guilds and in participating in the trade guilds to participate in the things they did accompanying their business. So the Christian who sold goods or was a part of scarlet and purple and a part of the industry, if he was going to get any business at all, he had to get it through the trade guilds and normally had to join one of them. If there was to be any money made and anything sold, that's the way it was done. But in order to do that, in order to go to the gathering and meet with them where they met in the center of the city, there had to be the observance, at least, of this worship of idols. And then all the parties and the revelry and the gluttony and the wickedness that went along with it in the evenings in celebration of the feasts and the good things. But Christ opposes such participation when it means that we would be giving our consent and our support and perhaps our own selves to the practice of these lewd practices or idolatry. He makes no room for such among his people and therefore in Thyatira to this prophetess who was teaching the people that it was all right for Christians to partake in that kind of life and to be a part of what was accepted and norm and actually seemed to be necessary in the society. It was okay for them to do it. The Lord God himself gave her, this prophetess, time to repent. But she was not willing to repent. But the worst part, as you may remember, was that the church in Thyatira was allowing her to continue to teach. We saw Christ's patience in granting space for repentance, and we saw his burning wrath threatened against her and against her children or her followers. She and they who followed her were arrogant. They thought of themselves as having a deeper knowledge than the normal Christian. They called it the depths of Satan or the deeper things. And it recalls to our memory the early practices of some of the mystery religions in which you were initiated into the inner circle and you were shown things and taught things that no one outside your club could know. Something similar to the Masonic order of our day, which has gone back through many generations. A secret society with secret rituals who know things that you're not allowed to know unless you're willing to pay the fee and get into the ritual. Well, there were those in the church who thought of themselves as having a superior knowledge. These little followers of Christ didn't have the full and mature perspective that they had, and some of them were hung up on things that they shouldn't have been hung up on in their minds. And so these gifted and more knowledgeable saints, as they thought of themselves to be, gave, uh, gained liberty away from the restrictions of God's law because they knew things that no one else could know about the gospel, so it was okay to partake in things that God had forbidden. But the Lord would have none of it. And you remember that he required his church to reject this prophetess and her practices and teaching, and to rid themselves of her, lest they receive of the death and the pestilence which he would indeed send upon all those who followed her. But then we noted how our Lord, in his kindness, not only gave the church these threatenings and warnings of his impending wrath upon them if they did not put away this woman and leave her teachings, but he also shows his kindness in offering promises to those who did avoid and flee such wickedness. Now these promises are subsumed under two headings. First of all, the negative promise. In verse 24, he says to them in the last part of the verse, which we covered last time, I cast upon you 
none other burden. And then there's the positive aspect of these promises. The things not that he would not do, but the things that he would do. Now, in the negative promise regarding the burden, we saw in our last study the confirmation and the clarification of our perpetual duty. We saw that it was not our Lord's will to abrogate the moral law and our responsibility to it, but to confirm it and to clarify it. He says in verse 25, after having said, I will cast no other burden upon you, he says, nevertheless, hold fast what you have till I come. I'll add no other burden to you than that which you already have. Nevertheless, you must hold fast that which you already have. And then in verse 26, he that overcomes and he that keeps my works. So we noted that the Lord was not abrogating the moral law and our responsibility to it, but he was confirming it and clarifying it. But on the other hand, he was not giving them a heavy imposition of an unbearable set of rules and strictures, not laying upon them a burden they could not bear. But on the contrary, he was giving to them a sweet promise of a bearable burden made up of a delightsome obedience to his holy will to the end. Now, that was the negative promise, the, what I won't do. I won't add to you any other burden than the one which you already bear. The burden of perpetual obedience to my holy law, a burden that is indeed to the true Christian a light and delightsome thing. You remember the doctrine of the Bible that if you're truly born of God and if you love God, you will keep his commandments and they will not be grievous. No true Christian from his heart sees any commandment of God's word as being a grievous thing. True believers delight in the commandments of God, even the ones they find themselves falling short of, which makes up all of them. You're not required as a Christian to be a Christian, you don't have to be perfect in keeping the whole law. If that were the case, no flesh could be justified. But what happens when God saves a man from his practice of transgressing the law of God is that he makes that man a different kind of man. Now, rather than loving his breaking of the law of God, he loves the keeping of the law of God. Now, rather than seeking a way out of keeping the law of God, his whole life is committed to seeking a way to keep it and grieving over the fact that he cannot find within himself in this body of sin the ability to do what he wants to do. He finds a law present with him, a law of captivity to the slavery of sin. Every time he would do good, sin's there. But the thing that dominates his heart and characterizes him as a Christian is he does delight in the law of God. And he does grieve that there's this sin in him that keeps him from doing what he wishes to do with all his heart. Well, <clears throat> that's why the burden the Lord lays upon the church is not a burden of heavy, unbearable weight. It's not the slavish, legal fear of hoping I can live up to the standard far enough that he will finally accept me and say, all right, you've earned your way in. But it's the burden of the yoke that is easy and the burden that's light, which he lays on his church. No other burden. But then in the positive promise, which the Lord gave to the church, we began to consider the reward and blessing of our faithful obedience. Having seen the confirmation and clarification of our perpetual duty, we then looked at the reward and the blessing of our faithful obedience. We studied a portion of this latter point last time in when we got into the doctrine of this uh, giving of them the rule over the nations. But tonight I wish to overlap a bit with the last study in looking into our Lord's gracious promises, which encourage people like those at Thyatira and people like those in Albany. And the way we'll seek to open up the text is under three headings. And these are the three headings. First of all, the encouraging reward. Second, the underlying blessing. 
And third, the sobering significance of it all. First, the encouraging reward. Now, there's a bit of overlap in terms of dealing with the ruling over the nations that we dealt with last time. But the overlap is not repetitive. It's an addition to what we saw. The encouraging reward is twofold. The first part of the encouraging reward is this. Verses 26 and 27. The Lord says, He that overcomes and he that keeps my works to the end, to him will I give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my Father. So the first aspect of this encouraging reward is authority or power or rule over the nations. And it is that that we saw last time in some fashion. The second part of the encouraging reward is seen in verse 28. I will give him the morning star. Now the question is this. Is it worth it for the people in Thyatira in the church to endure the pressures of their culture? You know the Bible says, be not conformed to this world. Literally, do not let this world press you into its mold and force you to be like it. The world is pressing all the time to stuff you into a mold. And there's a clear mold. It's there for you to look at. Everybody else is fitting into it. And all the pressure upon you is for you to fit into it. There's very little pressure from the world for you not to fit the mold. Well, the issue is, can you, is it worth your enduring this pressure to fit the mold? Enduring the taunts of those around you when you do not? The ridicule of fellow churchmen who say that you're old-fashioned, you're narrow, you're strict. You're legalistic, perhaps even cultic. Is it worth it to endure such for this narrow way that leads to life that is laid out for us by the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, the Lord Jesus knows the temptation that we all live under to be pressed into the world's mold. He knew what was going on in Thyatira and how easy it would be to heed this woman's teaching. Stay in the church. Have a self-appointed prophetess teaching us that we may do the things that we like to do without the disfavor of God. And in fact, gaining more of the favor of those who are the secret to our wealth. The Lord understood how easy it is for people to fall prey to such pressure. And he helps them to beat that temptation. Understanding their weakness and the pressure, he helps them to flee it. And how does he help them? He encourages them. That's why we entitled this first point, The Encouraging Reward. The scriptures say, be not weary in well-doing. Why? That's not the end of that statement. The Lord doesn't just say, don't be weary in well-doing. He says something else. What is it? For you will reap if you faint not. There's a reward in the enduring. It's not just a period put at the end of a slavish endurance that says, I'm God, you endure. Period. I don't know that there's a time in the Bible God ever does that. He never commands his people to do something without offering incentives and encouragement. That's the way God is. Here's the way the Lord is with the church at Thyatira and I believe for us. Now, what are you going to reap? If you do not grow weary in Thyatira, and if you persevere to the end and overcome and keep my works and hold fast that that you have in spite of all the pressure and the pull of the world to relinquish it, what are you going to reap? What's it worth to you to do it? What's at the end? What will you get? And this is where the Lord gives them the encouraging reward as a part of this twofold promise. He says in the first place, I will give them power over the nations, or I'll give him authority over the nations. Now, it's an interesting word that's used for power or authority here. It's the word poimenai, and it's a Greek word that means shepherd, shepherding. It's the same word used for the concept of shepherding in the Bible. It implies an oversight 
and a governorship and a rule over a flock of sheep. The issue is the Lord is going to make you shepherds over the nations. He is going to make you a ruler. Now, this is not a violent rule. It's not tyranny. It's not a carnal rule by which we use military force and governmental institutional force to force the world to submit to the Christian worldview and to act according to our pleasure so we can do our thing without anybody sinning around us. It's not a rule over the nations by which the Lord says, if you'll endure till the end, I'll make everybody else do what you say even if they're not Christians and you won't have any problems in the world. Well, that would be patently false because we know that in the very essence of his teaching this, they're having to overcome opposition. And it's the reward of the overcoming that they rule the nations. Certainly that cannot mean that God is promising to his people and Christ is promising to his church that he's got a little secret thing to give them the day they make their decision that if they'll just be sincere, he'll just make everybody around them do as they please. And then they won't have to be dealing with all these reprobates out here in the world. Because see, one of the problems saints have in their sometimes in their self-righteousness, sometimes in a sincere grief, they just don't like having to look at the filth. They just get tired of listening and looking at the filth. And they would love somebody to stop that stuff. And to take the pornography off the shelves of the convenience store or every other store. They'd like to be able to walk past a, a, a checkout stand without having to turn the head this way for the first four steps until they get past the magazine rack. They'd like not to have to face and deal with all that stuff. Not only because they don't like it, but partly because they do like it. And they don't like to have to deal with the frustration and the temptation and the pressure constantly. You know, they mock us when we say, you shouldn't display this stuff. And they say, oh, the only reason you don't want it displayed is because you like the stuff. And I've answered that question. I said, well, that's part of the reason. Yes, that's exactly part of the reason. There's something in me that likes the stuff, and that's why I don't need to see it. Because this stuff sends people to hell. And I've got enough like of it inside me that if I look at it, it's going to lead me down that path. And I don't think you need to do that to me. Don't let them catch you off guard and hold you hostage to their piosity. But here's the issue. The Lord is not promising us that he's going to so to subdue the world under us that we'll be the presidents and we'll be the kings and we'll be the governors of this age and this world and they'll do as we say and we've got, we get to put them down and shut them up and we edit the newspapers and we'll elect the presidents and the party we want and we'll have the rules and the law and we'll, we're going to have it. I don't believe that if you're picketing at the abortion clinic, you should picket on the basis of this passage. I don't believe that's the way you, I don't think that's the grounds for that. Whether or not you pick it, I don't think you ought to use this passage as your confidence. The Lord said if we'll do this, he'll give us power when we're going to win this. You may not. They may still abort the babies. They may do it till they all are in hell. And if you put your hope in this world and in our somehow and our ability to rise up and gain enough legislative power and military strength that we're going to snuff the world out from this stuff, I think your hope is misplaced. No, this is a shepherding. It's the rule of example. The rule of instruction. May we say the ministry of healing. What did the Lord call us? What are we in this world? We're the what of the world? We're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That doesn't sound like military force to me. It doesn't sound like carnal power. It doesn't sound like institutional rule. It sounds like the exertion of a power the world doesn't understand. The exertion of an influence the world cannot resist. It sounds like a rule that implies eventually men from every tongue and tribe and nation will come and bow before the, the God we preach. It sounds like the rule that grows out of the preaching, out of the message that we bear. You are lights in the world. You reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. Yes, there may be a place for public protest. There certainly is a place for righteous disobedience to ungodly laws. Yes, there is. If there's not, then Peter and John sinned when they said we must obey God rather than man. And they refused to obey the Roman governors and the Jewish leaders. 
But on the other hand, our goal in this life is not to subdue externally the bodies of the enemies of Christ so that we can live it up in this world without anybody bugging us. The goal is not to get the airwaves filled with Christian rock so we can still enjoy the kind of music we always enjoyed, but have it sanctified because it's got Jesus' name sprinkled through it once in a while. The goal is not to subdue the world to us so we can bring it into the church as Pergamos did. And still be in the church, but get to do the stuff they do, yet in, in the way that God doesn't think anything wrong with it. This rule is a rule of shepherding. It's a rule that is exerted by the erecting of the kingdom of God in the world. What did the Lord Jesus say? I will build my church. Where? In the political center, through the legislative halls of government. No. I will build my church upon the rock of militarism. No. I will build my church by the uh, to the political action committee. No. I will build my church on the rock of wise investments. No. I will build my church on the rock of an organization and a large theological entity that is able so to infiltrate the influential areas of life and government and education that eventually will have control? No. I will build my church on the rock of the confession that came from the mouth of Simon Peter, which said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates representing the place where the decisions are made in the political arena. The gates are where the elders gather and dialogue and debate the issues and make the civic decisions. And those places of hell which are sprinkled throughout the world will not prevail against the church which Christ is building, not by military might, nor by the power of flesh, <coughs> but by his spirit. You remember the parables and the teachings of our Lord? <coughs> He's going to build the world in the midst of the church, in the midst of the world. Remember the parable in Matthew 13? The wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. The disciples, the, the, the man asked, should we go out and cut them all down, get rid of all these wicked tares? No, if you do that, you're going to cut down the wheat with it. Why are you going to cut down the wheat with it? Why couldn't you be selective and cut out all the tares and miss the wheat? Because the way God has ordained the building of his church, he's built the church in such a way that she is so intricately in the midst of this world that you can't chop out the wickedness without killing all her. What would happen today if God killed all the leaders of our country that are wicked? You would have very few leaders, brethren. What if God killed all the violators of the Sabbath day tonight? You wouldn't have groceries next week because the trucks would be not rolling and nobody would be open because this is their big day. The prophets would plunge. The investors would panic. Wall Street would go to the bottom. It all would fall apart. God can't destroy the tares without wiping out the wheat. Those are just base kind of simple analyses. But because we're built into this world, we're commanded to use the world. You can't destroy the world without destroying us until the day of judgment when he's going to separate it all out. As long as this earth stands, Christians and the church are going to be built in the midst of it. But not only is Jesus building his church in the midst of it, he's building it against the opposition of the world. We're told throughout the scriptures that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. The whole book of Revelation shows the nations of the world standing against the Lord and his Christ. They are not in favor of what we're doing here. They don't want to hear what we're doing here. They don't want a spiritual rule. They want the carnal victory. They want riches in this world. They want the pleasures of this world. We don't. We don't want that stuff. We're not reaching for that stuff. They do. Therefore, they hate us. We're a living rebuke to them and their lifestyles. 
We're an embarrassment to them. We are narrow and legalistic and cultic because we don't fit the mainstream of the love of the world. And most of them saying that are members of churches. Many of them the largest so-called church in the world who think of groups like us as weird. I understand them. If I were among them, I would think the same thing about us. There was a time I did think that way about groups like us. Looks like a motley crew here, not much threat to the world. As the Bible says, there are not many noble, not many wise, not many strong, not many rich called. I'm not shocked at all when I look about a church and I say, you know, we don't have any of the giants in the political arena here. The best thing we got in the political arena is the guy that works downtown in an office for somebody who's related to a senator someplace in some party and hopes they get reelected so his job is ended. That's the closest we've got to the, to the hill down there. I'm not saying it'd be wrong to get in there and have some say, but not many of those types come into the kingdom of Christ. How hardly shall rich men enter the kingdom of God? There's not many of those. There once in a while there, there are, but not many. It's not the characteristic of the kingdom of Christ because riches choke you off and then they make you don't want that stuff. So the world doesn't want to be a part of this weird group. And as long as we don't rock the boat, they don't mind our existing and even having the tax-free property. As long as we don't bother them, and as they say, try to cram our religion down their throat. Namely, as long as we don't live consistently with what we preach and practice. In other words, if we believe that our God is the only God and that His Son is the only way for them to be saved, to go to heaven and not go to hell, and if we tell them that, they think we're trying to cram something down their throat because we don't like them. They don't understand that it's because we believe what we believe and we do love them that we even say the truth to them. They themselves have no conscience about trying to cram their religion down our throats or their irreligion. But they have a great sensitivity to anybody that wants to disagree with them. Well, that's the world and it's opposition and it's in the midst of that that Christ is building his church and they're not going to stand and prevail against it. But not only in the midst of the world and against the opposition of the world is he building his church, but he's building it out of the people of the world. Where does Jesus get his people? Out of the same ones that are persecuting his people. How's he going to build his church? He's going to take people from out there who hate his church, like the apostle, like Saul of Tarsus, yet breathing out slaughter against the church. And Jesus arrests him on the road to Damascus, looks him in the eye and smites him down blind, and in direct revelation transforms the man from a persecutor into the persecuted. By definition, that's what happens when you join the church of Christ. You become one of the persecuted. If you haven't become one of the persecuted, you haven't joined the church of Christ. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if there's none, nobody standing against you and what you believe, you haven't joined us. <coughs> All right? Now the Lord, out of the very people who persecute the church, is building his church. What did he say? There will come a day when they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in my kingdom. But the Jews, the ch children of the kingdom who should have received him, they're not going to be coming in as a, as a group. They're going to reject him. Only isolated ex exceptions to that. But not as a nation. People from all over the world. What did the Lord promise his son? I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. Now, why, how does this tie in? Do you see the point we're trying to make? That the Lord Jesus is building his kingdom in the world. He's building it in the midst of the world. He's building against the opposition of the world. And he's building it out of the people of the world through our witness and our testimony and our example. We're healing the world as their shepherds by giving them words of life. <clears throat> by setting an example that's an alternative lifestyle that could save them from what they're doing. Brethren, if they would have listened to us, some of them wouldn't be dying today. We could have saved their physical life if they just listened to the Bible. We are a healing agent. Who else in this culture is saying, Sin! Don't do it! 
Who else is waving a red flag at the at the washed out bridge and stopping the traffic? Don't go! Stop! Whoa! Death ahead! Danger! Who else is doing it but the Church of Christ? It's easy to make a political speech and to call on God and to preach sermons that sound sort of half religious and quote Jesus and quote Mahatma Gandhi and quote the Pledge of Allegiance and sound spiritual, it's much more difficult to preach the truth. And you certainly would never get by with it on national television at a political convention. And if you try to preach a little, they'll cut you off and go to the floor for interviews while you speak. Happened this year. Dear friends, Jesus Christ is building His church out of the very people who are trying to keep it from being built. I consider that part of the promise kept. I'm going to give you rule over the nations. They're going to come and serve. They're going to be shepherded. You're going to be their shepherds. What are you? Your intercessors? Your priests? Your kingdom of priests? When we pray on Wednesday night in this place, for whom do we pray? Well, we've prayed for people we've never met in the Philippines. We pray for the church there. We pray for the pastor of the church there. We pray for a couple of other pastors there. And then we pray for people that haven't even ever been to those churches and don't know they exist. That God will so use those churches that the truth will get through them out to those people in the highways and hedges and they'll be saved. Well, is there any use in that? <clears throat> Brethren, that's the reason we're here. That's why God put us here. It's one of the reasons He left us after He saved us instead of taking us right to heaven. <coughs> Intercessors to stand in the gap and make up the hedge and pray for those who can't pray for themselves. Some of you, most of you probably, are saved because somebody prayed for you when you had no intention of praying for yourself. Somebody else said, Lord, save that guy. Save that guy. Some church somewhere prayed for a relative of someone. And God had mercy on you. Well, verse chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, verse 14 tells us that the Lamb will overcome them. And then it goes on and says something else. You see, these are the same nations in chapter 17 that we read about throughout the Bible. The ones we read about a few weeks ago in Psalm chapter 2. Why did the heathen rage and the kings take counsel against the Lord and His anointed? In verse 14 of Revelation chapter 17 we read, These shall war against the Lamb. Well, that's the first reality. They will war against the Lamb. But then it says, And the Lamb shall overcome them. How will He overcome them? Because He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And then look what it says. And they also shall overcome that are with him. The called and the chosen and the faithful. In his overcoming, those that are with him will overcome. Now there's two sides to it. There's the now ruling over the nations. In our preaching, we are like leaven. Who, who is leavening the whole lump and we're going to continue to leaven the lump until the whole lump has been leavened. The yeast is rising in the world. It started in Jerusalem. It's reached the ends of the earth and it's reverberating all the way back now. And when it's all the dough is filled with yeast and affected by it, then the Lord will come. And that's what we are. We're the leaven. It's a gradual process. And there's trouble in the midst of it. Especially trouble for the leaven. For the preachers. And for the people that take their stand. So there's now the fulfilling of this promise in ruling the nations. But finally there will also be the fulfilling of the promise. In the judgment the righteous will stand. And according to Psalm 37, the righteous will see the fall of the wicked. All of those in the nations who do not come and bring their gifts into the city of God, all the kings of the earth who refuse to bow to Him voluntarily will one day bow to, bow to Him involuntarily. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If you sit here tonight and you worship anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ as the Bible presents Him, if you have any other mediator between you and God and you rely on any other person to answer your prayers, 
and you worship and serve any other person that takes the place of Christ in any way, you have refused to bow to Christ as the Lord. And if you do not repent and come to Him in, mercy, in faith and humility, you will one day bow the knee to Him and worship Him alone. Though unwillingly, the day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But notice also that this rule that He gives us is with a rod of iron. A rod of iron. Interesting, the word rod is the same word used in Psalm 23. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You remember that passage? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thy rod will comfort me. There's a sheep who is familiar with a shepherd's rod. The purpose of which is not only to protect the sheep from his enemies, the wolves and the bears and the lions, but to gently nudge the sheep back into line. Sometimes to pull him out. Sometimes to goad him a bit. But it's a comfort to the sheep because the shepherd knows what's best and the sheep is secure in the shepherd's knowledge. Same word used here, a rod. You'll shepherd the nations with a rod. Now for many it'll be a comforting rod. They'll thank you for praying for them one day. They'll thank you for telling them the truth. And they'll come and as it were almost bow at your own feet in gratitude. But for many others there'll be resistance and they won't come. And that's why I like the way it's put. It's a rod of iron. It's a rod of iron in the sense that it's irresistible. It means there will be final, absolute victory in the church of Jesus Christ. His people will indeed rule the nations. He will indeed build His church. And they shall rule with a rod of iron. Just as a potter's vessel is broken in shivers, so shall all who resist what we say and what we do, as long as it's in keeping with what we say. And what we do, as long as it's in keeping with what he says, those that resist will be ground up by the message we preach. What happened to the Roman Empire that chopped the head of Paul off? What happened? You find it for me. It dissolved. The message that was preached killed it. The thing flowed into Christianity. I'm not suggesting it flowed into what became pure Christianity. But I'll tell you, there's a stark contrast from 95 A.D. and 300 A.D. Or 312 or 15 A.D. A lot of contrast between the two. On the other, Christians are in vogue. Well, I can. How'd they do it? Not by fighting wars, but the gospel did it. Well, that's the first point of the promise. The second is this, and this is the one we've not even touched upon yet. And I will give to him the morning star. It'll be as far as we can get tonight, but it's a blessed thing to consider. I will give to him the morning star. Verse 28. Of Revelation chapter 2. What does that mean? What's the morning star? Sounds kind of strange to me. Who cares about the morning star? If you think about it from a non-biblical perspective and an ignorant perspective, that sounds... What, what's that mean? Are we talking cosmology? Are we talking uh, astrology? What are we talking about here? What is the Lord promising? What significance is this thing? Well... There are widely varied interpretations to what the morning star here represents. Some say that it's the divine light soon to appear and scatter the darkness and the doubt and the gloom that's luring over Thyatira and the nations of the world. Others say it's the light of the truth given to the whole world that's coming increasingly. Some say it's the manifestation of the heights of heaven in contrast with the depths of Satan that was existing and bragged about in Thyatira. You see, while others around them boasted of their superior knowledge, the Thyatiran Christians were promised the heights of heavenly wisdom and knowledge where the light dawns. 
Or others still suggest that the morning star is the glory of God as contrasted with the pagan sun god Apollo, who was the centerpiece of Thyatiran worship. The morning star, the glory of God. Others, the dawn of the morning, which follows the long dark night of the fallen world's sin and misery. There's coming a day which you will see. This world's fall, this world's curse, all gone. And it'll be perfect and pure as it was originally in Eden, the morning star. Others suggest that it's the long-awaited revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in perfect and glorious righteousness and peace and joy. Well, I have to say that there may be some truth in all of these, and I think there probably is. But I lean to the last. And I lean to the last simply because of the language of the book of Revelation. I submit and I believe that this is the long-awaited revelation of the Lord Jesus himself that he's speaking of when he says, I'll give to you the morning star. The arrival of the royal wedding day when the beleaguered bride will at last be presented faultless and spotless before him and to him who is her rose of Sharon, the lily of her valley, the delight of her soul, her beloved, her bright and morning star, when she shall be free from the taunts of her arch accusers, the temptations of her ancient foe, the griefs induced by the jealous world and her own inner failings, her own fears, her own weaknesses. I want you to turn with me to a few passages. First of all, to Second Peter chapter 1. This is not a strange concept in the scriptures, this morning star or star of the morning. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verse 19, the apostle Peter says, We have the word of prophecy made more sure, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. There's a day after which we who love the Bible and the Word of God long. It's not today. It's a day future. It's a day in which the light which we see now through a glass dimly will no longer be obscured. It'll not be a mere reflection in the faces of imperfect people. But it'll be in its full radiant glory. The morning star. The rising up of the brightest star in the heavens. The one that predominates over the others when it's at its zenith. It's the morning star. And until the day star arise in your heart. Is how Peter puts it. The righteous will receive. All the currents of prophecy and preaching ever proclaimed. All the glorious culmination of the symmetry, the sufficiency, the beauty, the order, the power, and the significance of every true word ever spoken by all God's servants. We shall bask in the radiance of Christ the truth, perfectly and finally vindicated. The truth we loved in this place. The truth we preached. The truth we lived for. The truth we died for will be ours forever without mitigation. Now the Bible teaches that the very people who follow the morning star will receive it. And it also teaches that they will reflect it. Turn back to the Old Testament quickly to Daniel chapter 12. You see, in this Old Testament apocalyptic book, there was encouragement to the saints, too. In Daniel chapter 12, to a persecuted people who were thrown back and forth by the exchanging kingdoms of this world, by the idol worshippers who killed people of God because they wouldn't bow to their idols. In verse 3 of Daniel 12, we're told, They that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars. 
forever and ever. And then turn with me to Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verse 43. Speaking of the righteous, they that are wise shall shine as the stars in the firmament. Not only, you see, do we receive the morning star, but we will shine as the morning star. In Matthew 13, verse 43, the Lord Jesus, speaking of the parable of the tares in the field, and speaking of the day when all the division will be made in the last judgment, and those who are truly his wheat will be separated from those who only maybe pretended to be. And then the, the, the tares will be cast into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Verse 43 of Matthew 13 says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So what I'm suggesting to you is <clears throat> that when the day comes, you not only will receive the morning star, you will reflect it. You'll shine. You'll be so intimately connected and united with the morning star that you yourself will experience its glory. We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We shall be glorified together with him. Who shall fashion this vile body into the likeness of his glorious body we shall delight in the in the revelation of the final fulfillment of all the predictions of the coming messiah which filled the bosoms of ancient saints with expectancy and longing all those predictions meet in this one bright hope the morning star remember in isaiah 42 Speaking of our Lord, the old prophets longing to see him, not able to comprehend what manner of time the Spirit was signifying when he spoke of the, to them of the sufferings and glories of Messiah. Isaiah says, he will bring forth justice for truth. <laughs> it's hard to believe that today, isn't it? Where is justice? It's fallen in the streets. He'll bring forth justice for truth, though, we're told. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. This earth where there's hardly any justice. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he hath established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. That means everybody in the whole world are at least representatives from every tongue and tribe and nation. The Lord Jesus isn't going to stop, nor is he going to be discouraged until the whole world is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It shall not forever be as it now is, my brethren. The people of God shall not always live in a world that perverts justice for money, that slays the innocent to cover our pleasure, that reward the guilty and punish the guiltless, because one day the Lord will laugh at their calamity and the righteous will see it. It shall not forever be as now it is, saints suffering as doers of good, saints groaning with their remaining corrupt hearts, battling sin in the world, longing for the time when victory is complete, tired of themselves and their cool hearts, weary of failure, frustrated with battles lost. The Lord will present us faultless before his presence. What does that mean to you? Can you imagine what that means to you? Does the word sink in and you understand faultless? You? It's a privilege and a delight for the pastor to look into the faces of a bunch of fault-filled people and imagine 
faultlessness on those faces. That's what we're told that we'll have. Jesus will come. Everything will be right and true and good and beautiful. He'll be the joy of his people forever. It's all going to be there. He's promised it. I want to read a passage from an old writer in the 19th century, an old Presbyterian. I borrowed the book from a man, and lo and behold, I found this. We cannot help looking with amazement as the great book of time is closed before us. And we are suffered to catch one rapturous glance in the pages of the sublime book of eternity. Its description stands out in the single expression, I'm the bright and morning star. That's all there is or could be revealed to us as yet. For eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Oh, for more, we cry. But even this hints of the infinite depths which we may explore to all eternity. One glimpse of the glory to be revealed entrances the soul. But will not the saint become satiated by the perpetual fruition of the same rapture? Will not the indescribable bliss at length lose its zest? Will not the ecstatic rapture wear into satiation as the endless ages pass on? Oh, no. The one marvelous promise from the lips of our glorious Lord as he went up to the bosom of the Father was, I am the bright and morning star. Not I will be, but I am the morning star. I am to the ransomed as they enter upon their eternal bliss. I am as cycle after cycle opens up before them. I am at every influx of new bliss. I am forever and ever experience always fresh, always novel, always upward, always the rapture of holy curiosity, always newness. For as the Son of God, I am always with them. Now turn with me to the back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 22. And this is the primary reason that I believe that when he says, I will give to him the morning star, he is referring essentially to himself. In verse 16, the last attribute the Lord Jesus assigns to himself in the Bible. Verse 16 of Revelation 22. The last thing he says about himself in terms of his character and attributes to his beleaguered church in the world. I, Jesus. See, that's supposed to encourage you and comfort you. He didn't send just a messenger. He, Jesus, is the one that sent the message. He did send a messenger, but it comes from Christ. This is a letter from Christ. He cares. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright, the morning star. Dear brethren, the Lord Jesus is coming. And the Lord Jesus is going to reward his people who waited for him. And live for the day of his coming with nothing less than his own person and all that we have as a result of our union with him in that person. We shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. I don't understand that. I've never gotten a picture of that in my mind any more than I can picture eternity. My Bible tells me it shall be to him that overcomes and keeps my works and holds fast what he has. To him, I'll give the rule over the nations. They'll come flooding into Zion at his word, at his testimony. And I'll give him the morning star. And he shall bask in the glory and the radiance of a Savior who delighted to save him. Now, I want to say one thing. As we close. If that doesn't turn you on a bit. If that doesn't affect you a bit. 
if there's something about knowing Christ person to person, face to face, and being like him that just leaves you cold, if that doesn't satisfy your soul, if that's not where you're headed in your life, and if that's not what you're shooting for, and if that's not the goal of your existence, then the reason is you've never become a Christian. And you're not saved tonight. And you desperately need to be. I didn't say if you don't understand everything that's meant by the morning star or if you don't comprehend all of it and fathom it. But I said if you don't desire to be like Jesus and if the greatest desire of your heart isn't ultimately that you be rid of yourself as a sinner and you'll have all of him and he'll have all of you. And if the day in which you live forever with him, like him, loving him and serving him is not what you're after in this world, then you're after something that is not a part of the Christian life. You have not been crucified to the world, nor the world to you. You have not died with Christ. You have not been buried with Christ. And you have not been raised up together with Christ to be seated with Him in heavenly places because that's not what you want. You need to repent of such a rotten view of life, such a self-centered view, in which you have longed for something other than the fullness of the triumph and the glory of Christ Jesus and your share in it with him by his grace. I charge this church that if you find it not stirring your heart, if you find it strange to your ears, that the whole thing you're doing by coming to this church and serving Christ and reading your Bible and praying and battling against sin and seeking pastoral counsel and getting admonition from brethren and exhortation from brethren, if all of this stuff is just going to get you up to heaven with Jesus and be like Jesus, if that's not what you're after in all this, you're wasting your, you're spinning your wheels. Far be it from you to spin your wheels fighting these battles if your goal is not to win. And the winning is not that you somehow be Mr. Big Shot. The winning is the delight of living with the Lord Jesus with all of this sin and without all this misery of your own corruption forever. If that's what you long for, you shall have it. If that's not what you long for, you're unsaved and you're on the way to hell. And you need to ask God to have mercy on you and give you a different heart and forgive you of that sin of loving something other than him. And to fill you with a desire and a longing to be like him. And to admire him and to love him and shine forth like him as stars in the firmament. I confess to you as I preach it to you. That I have so far to go in my own heart. To loving my Savior as I ought and to longing for his coming. Just preparing it made me wonder. Made me have to check again. Made me have to look for the roots of the issue in me. Because I'm so dull and so cold. But I tell you. I found something there. I found enough to encourage me to keep pressing. I found enough that made me believe that is what I really want more than anything else. I don't want the world. I don't want the things of the world. I've already had a taste of all that. It's not what it cropped up to be. I do long, though, to know this God as he is. I long to look in the face of what is everything that I'm not. I long to see the rock of my salvation. I desire to bask in the radiance of one who's never sinned and who makes me into one who never will sin again. I desire to be a holy man. I desire to be a pure man. I desire to have my motives put right. I don't want to be angry with anybody anymore. I don't want to be frustrated anymore. I don't want to live a life of pride marked by rebellion in my heart and resistance to truth and scrambles with stuff that's unworthy of Christ. I want to be a man who from the tip of his hat to the bottom of his feet, all in and out his heart, everything about him, body, soul, and spirit belongs to Christ, loves Christ, and is not deterred in the least from an eternal worship and service of Christ without sin. That's what I want. And that's what Christ promises me if I cling to him to the end. May God help us discern in our souls what we want. And then when we decide what it is we want, may God give us the discernment to know what that means about our condition before him and what we must do to get it right. You call on the Lord with a heart that recognizes it has not loved him and worshipped him, he will forgive you and save you and give you a heart that will.
but may God help us to call on Him before it's too late. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Our Father, your people have heard very graciously and have given good attendance to your unworthy servant. They have desired to hear from you, not so much from me. They have longed to have hope spoken to their hearts. They want to believe what's written in the book. They want to feel the weight of it. They grieve, O Lord. Where, where all the coldness and the gap is, is given in their souls between what they ought to be and what they are. O oh Lord, if the truth could be shown on their faces, if they could shed tears to prove it, they would confess with their faces and their tear ducts that they would gladly lose everything else in the universe if they could just know that they could be with you and be like you and serve you and have your smile. O Lord our God, receive our praise and our thanksgiving that you have so loved the church, that you have designed her and appointed her to a day in which she shall look at herself without a blemish and stand before her groom spotless. O our Savior, We cannot fathom such love, but we pray you would increase our ability to fathom it, that you would make us a people who delight in you and you alone. Oh God, we confess our iniquities here. You know them. We know some we would not mention in public. You know our hearts. So we bow before you. We desire no games to be played. We desire you to do a work in us to prepare us for that day which you have promised to all those who love your appearing. O God, our Savior, make us to love your appearing and then satisfy us when we awake with your likeness. Hear our plea. Make these words stick to our souls to the glory of your dear Son, and to the good of your loved people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.